You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a parent, I always wanted my four kids to know uh, the rules in the house. You know, we had a number of rules in our home, but we tried to keep them to a minimum. Because I figured if God only had Ten Commandments, I did not need to have 50 rules in our house. But I also really wanted my kids to know why those rules existed. So as they grew older, I tried to help them understand why we had a particular rule in the home. I figured if I couldn't articulate why we had the rule, the rule probably didn't need to exist. And so, parents, you need to think about that. For example, one of the rules in our home was that you could only eat food in the kitchen or the dining room. Now, when asked why, I would tell my kids it's because I don't want ants in the house. And trust me, if you let your kids eat anywhere, because kids like adults are pretty messy, you're going to have food everywhere. And so we ate only in the kitchen, except for other special rare occasions. Another rule that we had in our house was that you had to clean your room every Sunday afternoon before you went or did anything after church. Now why? Because we wanted our kids' rooms to be cleaned at least one time a week. You know, that you could actually see the floor, that there was carpet on the floor, and see that a bed actually was there underneath all of that pile of stuff. We didn't require it every day, but once a week it had to be done. You know, I have parents all the time, well, what if you walked by the room during the week and it was a mess? You know what I did? I held my nose and I just pulled the door closed. <laughs> because I wasn't going to hassle my kids all week over something. I had to do it once a week. I took solace in the fact that at least on Sunday afternoon I could open their door and I could see the floor. Understanding the, why a rule is there is important as the rule itself. The rule, well, they teach much about the things that a person values by having the particular rule. Again, I wanted my children to understand why those rules were there because there are certain things in life that just matter. And the rules express that something matters. But simply put, rules are a way to teach values. They're a way to teach what matters to you. Well, God has some rules for His family as well. He only has ten. And I've come to realize that there is a purpose for each one of those ten commandments that He gave us. There's an important reason why God wants us to understand and apply these to our lives. God didn't put rules in place to just spoil our fun or to say, you're going to do this because I want you to do it. He put them in place to teach us what He values. Certain ideas, certain concepts that were important to Him and that our society needs in order to thrive and survive. So this morning we're going to examine the Ten Commandments. And we're going to look closely at the underlying reasons behind each one of them. And like my teenage children, I think you're going to be more likely to follow God's rules if you understand why they exist. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. 
And it says there, And God spoke these words, saying. Now, first of all, I want you to take note that God spoke these words. These came right from His mouth and right from His heart. Moses didn't get these Ten Commandments by means of an, an, immediate, an intermediary. God said, Moses, I'm going to give you these myself. And then I'm going to write them down on a set of stone for you. I'm going to say them out loud. I'm going to write them down because these are important. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, it's important that we notice up front this fact that before God gave these commandments, He had first done something in the life of these people. He had saved them. He had saved them out of bondage. Before He had any expectation that they would or could follow any of His directions, He first saved them. And this morning, I want to be clear with you up front about something, and that is that following these Ten Commandments will never save you. What saves you is the work that God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. We're saved by putting our faith in the cross of Christ and in that alone. He sacrificed His life that we could be saved. And by faith, we trust that that sacrifice is enough for God to look on us and say, okay, I accept you. But once we're saved, there are rules that exist in God's family. According to the New Testament, these commandments were given to help us understand how to love God and how to love each other. That was the purpose behind them. But we also need to understand that as believers, God doesn't want these commandments to be burdensome to us. And I see Christians from time to time that look like it's just such an ordeal. You know, i got to keep God's commandments. And it's hard. You know, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, John wrote these words. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome to us. When we've experienced God's grace, and when we really have experienced His love, trust me, keeping a few rules is not burdensome to us. When we keep them, we understand that they're there for a reason, that God has saved us, that God has put them there to protect us. God has put them there to guide us, to help us walk a walk that is pleasing to the Father. And so the house rules begin in verse 3. There he says, You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is declaring that we should not make a place in our lives for anyone or anything that would rival God's rightful place in our lives. He is to be our Father. We are to trust in Him with our whole heart. He's to be the one we depend on. He's to be the one we bow down to in worship. He's to be the one that we revere above all others. Now this idea of other gods, what are they? Well, other gods are simply things that we trust in that replace God's place in our life. When we're in trouble, to whom do we turn for help? When you're in need of forgiveness, where do you seek to find it? When you need direction or wisdom, where do you look? See, all of these are issues where God wants us to seek Him first, but when we seek something else, we've placed another God in our life. 
This is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. But what do we seek? Seek first God's kingdom, God's wisdom, God's righteousness. The God we trust is the one that we turn to first. Let me say that again. The God we trust is what we turn to first. And our Heavenly Father wants to be number one. And He wants to be that one and that one alone. And this is the heart of the first commandment. The why behind the first commandment is simply this. When we trust in other gods, we are trusting in things that offer false help and false hope. See, false gods offer false wisdom. False gods offer false promises. False gods offer a false forgiveness. The one true and living God offers a hope that is real. A forgiveness that is eternal. And wisdom that is ageless and trustworthy. God wants our trust to be in Him and in Him alone. Because it's trusting in Him where He can lay the foundation in our lives that is the only stable foundation in this unstable world. You see, this commandment boldly declares that there is only one God, one true God. And that true God seeks to protect us from false promises, from false gods. This commandment, is, it's all about our protection from a lying, deceiving enemy that shows up in the way of false gods. The second commandment, the second house rule that we have as believers is found in verse 4. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate excuse me, who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandment. Now the second commandment declares that we should not make any visible image of our Almighty God. This commandment really prohibits two things. First, it stops us from creating a God of our own. A God of our own making. One that looks like something we may see in nature, or one that looks sort of like us, a God we can control and a God we can manipulate, a God that we can see and a God that we can touch, a God that will tell us what we want to hear and give us what we desire. See, God doesn't want us doing that, but we're prone to it as humans. Second, it prohibits us from making the eternal, invisible God into a physical image that only diminishes who He really is. Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. When we try to make God visible, we only make Him smaller. We diminish who He really is. But so many of us want a God that we can see and a God that we can touch. We find it easier to worship when we can see Him. An image that we can focus on is easier to worship than trying to worship an invisible God. But God is spirit. 
And He wants us to learn to worship Him in spirit. When we have to have a cross in the altar in order to worship, and boy, you'd be surprised at how many people have asked us why we don't have a cross in the altar. Or when you have to have a picture of Jesus on the wall in order to pray. Or when you have to be in some extravagant cathedral in order to worship God, in order to really feel like you're there in His presence, we are violating the second commandment. It takes faith to bow and to worship an invisible God that we can't focus our eyes on. But we have to learn to do this in faith. We've got to learn to focus our spirit towards Him. And that requires great faith. And it's not easy. But God doesn't want it to be easy. He wants it to be real. He wants our worship, our worship to be a spiritual experience, not a physical one. And when we truly experience worshiping God in spirit, in other words, when our spirit touches His spirit, Guys, that is a remarkable moment for a human being. It's the moment that Peter described with the phrase, joy inexpressible. In 1 Peter chapter eight, chapter 1, verse 8, Peter said this. He said, now, though now you do not see Him, talking about Jesus, talking about God, yet believing, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. And this is the heart of the second commandment. It is to point us to true spiritual worship of the true and living God. It's a spiritual experience. Notice here that God declares Himself to be a jealous God. Not a, probably the best translation of the Hebrew word here. It, it more carries the idea that God is a passionate God. In other words, that his love for us is so deep, it is almost beyond our understanding. If, it's a, if, if you're a parent today, it's like the love that you have for your child. And you know, your child never understands how much you love them, do they? Not until they become a parent and then it starts to, to, to come to them, oh wow, my parents loved me this way. See, this is the love of God for us. It is so deep. He loves us passionately. And that's why He doesn't want us to get trapped with any other gods or any other images. This phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation who hate me. Boy, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? That's a, that's a dramatic statement. But it simply means that the price of rejecting God's love is a costly choice for us to make. And it is a choice that often lasts to the third and the fourth generation. Children with believing parents are much more likely to love God, trust me. But likewise, children with unbelieving parents who hate or disrespect God are much more likely to respect God's love. And the cost of this choice in pain and in suffering, it is passed from generation to generation. It goes on and it goes on. But so does God's mercy. God's mercy can be felt for generations. Do you know that by sitting here today and making the choice to worship the true and living God, do you realize that you 
could be changing your family for generations. Maybe your parents didn't love the Lord. Maybe you're the the first generation of believers for your family. Do you realize that you're making, you have made a choice that is changing your family for generations? Guys, I am so thankful that I had parents who followed the Lord. And I see it rippling through our generation of kids and through my children and through their children. The third commandment is found in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When most people think about this commandment, they think of profanity. They think of using God's name in a profane way. And certainly this is wrong, and certainly the Scripture is clear that we shouldn't be doing that. In Ephesians, if you want a New Testament verse, chapter 4, verse 29, Paul wrote, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Guys, using Jesus' name as a slang word when we get angry or frustrated, that's a terrible thing to do. And it's certainly a violation of this third commandment. But this rule, this commandment of God, is much, has a much more profound meaning than just that. It speaks more of misrepresenting God. It's to take His name in vain, in a vain way, is to do some sinful, selfish, self-serving act and to say that you are acting on behalf of God. It is to declare that you love God, but then you turn around and you treat others in a manipulating way, in an unjust way. The essence of this commandment is that it outlaws hypocrisy. And wasn't that the thing that Jesus spoke against more often than just about anything? Hypocrisy. This was his greatest indictment against the Pharisees. They claimed to represent God And while at the same time they were constantly burdening the people down with rules and regulations that were not from God. And this irritated Jesus. And He railed against them because they were misrepresenting His Father. This commandment exists because God hates to be misquoted and misrepresented. And so if we claim to be His followers, then our actions must be in line with His Word But not just His Word, but also with His heart. The fourth commandment's there in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. I believe this commandment was given to man primarily to protect us from ourselves. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the very first thing that God did for Adam was He put him to work. He told Adam to tend the garden that he had placed him in. God has placed within all humans, within all of us, a certain joy and fulfillment that is found in work and in accomplishment. 
Now, certainly the curse has stolen away some of that joy and has made work harder. But we still find a great deal of satisfaction in work. So much so that many of us are prone to work all the time. We'll work to excess. And if left to himself, many of us will work 16 hours a day, 7 days a week. We'll never slow down. Now, it might not always be at the job where we're taking a paycheck, but we'll, we'll stay working on some hobby or some sport that we're trying to get good at. We'll stay busy sitting in front of the TV just to stay busy. In order to protect us from ourselves, God made this rule that requires us to stop one day in seven. In God's family, every seven days, God declared it a rest day. We're to stop working and we're to focus on our family. Now, what does that mean to focus on our family? We're to spend time with our Heavenly Father. We're to spend time with our earthly brothers and sisters. We're to spend time with our earthly family. We're to rest and we're to worship. In other words, we're to take one day in seven to make it different from the other days and it would become a day of rejuvenation. A day when we would recharge the batteries and spend time with the Lord. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus has become our Sabbath day rest. And in one sense, believing in Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath day law. But in another sense, we still very much need this protection that it provides. We still need regular rest. We still need a weekly time of corporate worship together. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Look at the reason the Sabbath day is important and the gathering together is important. It's because we're supposed to come here and stir up love and good works in each other. In other words, we're supposed to leave here feeling ready to serve the Lord in a better way. We're to encourage one another. We're to come and make each other feel better by expressing our love to each other. We're to slow down long enough to give God the praise that's due His name. We're supposed to come and grow in faith as we study and we worship the Word, worship God together. Sunday forces us to change our routine. Each Sunday reminds us that family matters, that friends matter, that honoring and worshiping Jesus matters. And I hope this commandment is a commandment that you observe. I hope that you take a Sabbath rest. Part of living in God's family is to take one day in seven to rest, to worship, to fellowship, to just slow down. It will help you both physically and spiritually, if you will. Now, I want to give one word of warning because this, this commandment is tricky for a lot of people. Don't turn this commandment into some sort of burdensome law. Guys, that's what the Jews did. Remember what Jesus said? He said, man was not made for the Sabbath, 
The Sabbath was made for man. This commandment was not supposed to be something that trapped you. Oh, I've got to sit still today. I can't do anything. That's not what the Sabbath is about. It's about helping you control yourself. You just need to cooperate with Him. You just need to have a Sabbath day as a regular part of your life. And for some of you, that may not be able to be on Sunday. But you need to have one. Notice verse 12 says, our next commandment, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. This fifth commandment is there to remind us to value and respect authority. So you see, to honor mom and dad is to give them the appropriate respect that we should because of the position that they hold in our lives. God cares about us submitting to the authorities in our lives. He knows that we really don't submit to Him if we don't submit to the authorities that He's placed in our lives. Stop kidding yourself if you think you do. And, and see, mom and dad are just the first authorities that God puts in our lives. The day we're born, there they are. Some of them are good and some of them aren't. But they hold the position of authority in our lives. Now, most of us understand this commandment as it relates to children before adulthood. You know, especially if we have kids, we really understand it. You need to be doing what I'm telling you to do, you know. But we get confused as to how to apply this to ourselves as adult children. Are we still under the authority our parents once placed upon us now that we're independent of them? Well, the answer to that is no. If we're truly independent of our parents, in other words, if we're not taking anything from them financially and we're not living in their basement, then we're not under their authority. And so we're still not required by God to obey them. But we are still required to respect them and to honor them. Now, if you're still living in the basement and if you're still staking stuff from your parents, you know what? You need to obey them. Because, you know what? If you're not going to be independent of them, they're still an authority in your life. So you choose. Which do you want? See, but we must always honor the position they hold in our lives. They're our parents. And as I said a minute ago, your parents may or may not be respectable. I know some people grow up with horrible parents who treated them miserably, who abused them. But you honor and respect them because of the position they hold. Now, that doesn't mean you do what they say. For some of you, it doesn't even mean you need to be around them very much. Because I know sometimes it can be a very toxic relationship with a parent who is abusive. But it does mean that you respect them, that you maintain a certain level of respect, that you don't mistreat them, that you don't harm them in some way, that you don't abandon them if they need your help. You recognize that authority is important to God. It's all about, and, and listen closely, guys, it's all about maintaining some authoritative structure in my life. In other words, that I recognize that I'm under some authorities and, and that I have some people under me in a, that I am in authority over. That structure matters to God. And we need to recognize it. Maintaining this family support for each other is also important because the supportive family was God's answer to social welfare. You know, 
for most of mankind, there wasn't a government with Social Security in place like we have in this country as a safety net for people when they became helpless, especially in old age or children who were homeless. But see, the family structure was to be that safety net to where we helped each other, to where we respected each other and took care of each other. It is the one commandment that comes with a promise that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now certainly that had an application for Israel itself, but I believe that a strong, healthy family is one of the real keys to having a long life and a healthy life. God knows that any nation is only as strong as the families that make up that nation. And we have witnessed over the last 50 to 60 years the weakening of our nation because the family structure in our nation has broken and fallen apart. And as the family goes, so goes the nation. But do you know why the family's fallen apart? Because the authority structure of the family has fallen apart. And I hope that God will help us to embrace and remember this commandment. The sixth commandment, and we'll pick up the pace here now. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. Four simple words that teach us this, that God values life. This is what this commandment's all about. That God created life and that every life matters to God. He values it. Now notice this commandment does not say you shall not kill. Two very different words in the Hebrew language between murder and kill. There are many places in the Bible where God ordained and commanded the taking of life. But in each place, He took lives because He valued life. And we struggle with that. But God knows that sometimes in this world, we have to take life because we value the greater life of everyone. Murder is the intentional, premeditated taking of an innocent life. Think of how different this country would be if we just obeyed this one command. We have become a culture of the mass taking of innocent lives whether it's through abortion or whether it's through mass shootings that seem to have become part of our everyday life at schools and at churches and at businesses. And the odd thing is, in many cases, the shooter doesn't even know the people that he's slaughtering. It's amazing. Why is this happening? It's because we have so devalued life in our country. We take the lives of millions of innocent children in the womb. We teach children in school, students, young students, that they're just evolved animals, that they have no purpose. We've raised them to, to believe that they're not created in God's image. They're just cre- they're just, they just happened here. And then we wonder why children who have no purpose in life pick up a gun and go shoot somebody they don't know. Guys, it should make sense to us. God gave us this sixth commandment to ingrain in our minds that life matters, that people matter, and it should matter to us as well. The next commandment is found in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This seventh commandment declares 
that God values marriage and He values family. There is no single act that will destroy a marriage quicker than the act of adultery. As a matter of fact, it so injures the marital relationship that Jesus declared it as the one acceptable reason to go out and get a divorce. If your spouse does this to you, you're free to go. It doesn't mean you have to, but you're free to go. See, adultery destroys the heart of marriage. It destroys the heart of the covenant of marriage, which is trust. Marriage matters to God for many reasons. First, it paints a picture. Your marriage paints a picture of God's relationship with His church. I hope it's a beautiful picture. Marriage matters to God because it gives us a healthy place to express our sexual desires with a person within a relationship where there's love and there's commitment. And it also provides a safe and secure place for children to grow and to experience love. Marriage is the backbone of the family. Marriage is the heart of family. And family is the backbone of society. This commandment protects the heart of our society. Without strong marriages around us, everything else will ultimately fall. And aren't we seeing that today? So goes the marriage. So goes the country. Protect your marriage with all the strength you possess. Set up boundaries that you simply will not cross when it comes to relationships you have with people of the opposite sex. Don't think that you are the exception to the adultery rule because you're not. You put yourself in the right place with the right person at the right time and you'll break this commandment, I promise you. But like all of God's rules, this one is there to protect you. Don't think that you're smarter than God because you're not. Verse 15 tells us, you shall not steal. Now this is a simple statement. Here's what it communicates. It communicates to us the right of ownership. That people have the right to private property. That God gives us possessions and makes us responsible for them. Now, certainly there is a call in the Scriptures to share and to give what God gives to us. And there is a great blessing when we give away some of what God gives to us. As a matter of fact, we start with giving back to God, but then God wants us to share to others around us. But no one has the right to come and take what belongs to someone else. It's, it's private. It belongs to someone. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says to the thief, he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather... Let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something good to give to them to him who has need. If you're a Christian today, here's what Paul says to you. Don't steal anything. Go to work. Get a job. But why? Why work? Work in order that you may obtain things. In other words, work in order that God may put things in your possession so that you can be responsible for them, and so that you can share them with other people. This verse, we see that God values private ownership. But understand why. Because without private ownership, we can't have responsibility. And God ultimately wants us having responsibility. That's what this verse is really about. 
Are you taking responsibility for the resources that God has given to you? Now, if you don't own it, don't take it from somebody. You don't, but if you do own it, understand that God wants you to control it. God wants you to be responsible for it. He wants you to take what He's given to you and use it in a way that pleases Him. The ninth commandment in verse 16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Specifically, this commandment is condemning those who would go in court and lie. It's a prohibition against giving false testimony in a court of law. But understand the thought behind this is much more than just that. The thought behind it is that we need to be truthful with each other. We need to be people who are honest and, in, and people of integrity. This is what God values. We need to be people who can be trusted. Now, I want you to understand something about human beings. Guys, we have a default towards truth. Now, here's what I mean by that. We have a default within our nature to believe that somebody's telling us the truth until they absolutely prove to us that they're lying to us. We do. And it's important that God has placed that within us because think about what life would be like if we didn't assume that people were being honest with us. You wouldn't be driving that $3,000 piece of steel out there if you didn't trust that the person that made it or worked on it knew what he was doing. I hate to ruin your lunch, but you wouldn't go to Longhorns for that big juicy steak this afternoon if you didn't trust that that cook didn't spit in it before he gave it to you. Or that he didn't put something on it that's going to make you sick when you get home. No, you trust him. You, you just believe that that cook's going to take care of it. Guys, <laughs> I just ruined lunch for everybody, didn't I? <laughs> going to be getting that chicken from Kentucky Fried Chicken and looking at it. <laughs> Let me tell you what you wouldn't do, too. You wouldn't go to the doctor and let him stick that needle in your arm doctor that you hadn't known for five minutes and he's about to put you to sleep maybe for good but you trust him see we have to trust people in order for society to function and this is why lying is so dangerous because it communicates to people who want to trust us that we can't be trusted paul said again in ephesians 4 he said therefore put away lying let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another Notice that we are not to lie to each other. Why? Because we're members of one another. In other words, we're connected to each other. We're dependent upon each other. And we have to be able to trust each other for that relationship to exist. Listen, I can love you and not trust you. But I can't depend on you as a friend or as a brother and not trust you. I'm going to love you here today, but I might keep you at arm's length distance because I don't know what you're going to you know, spit on my soup or whatever. I don't know. But you know what? I love you. But I'll only trust you if I know that you'll be truthful with me. I can only have a relationship. You can only have a relationship with those that you know will be truthful with you. Lastly, our 10th commandment says, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And notice again, this property belonged to somebody. It belonged to somebody. And you didn't have the right to take it, and you also don't have the right to want it. 
Coveting is a very dangerous sin. The reason it's so dangerous is because all of our actions begin as thoughts in our minds or desires in our heart. Thus, if I start coveting my neighbor's wife, it's going to lead to adultery. If I start coveting my neighbor's car, it's going to lead to me stealing it or lead to me going into debt that I can't afford because I bought one, which is another form of stealing, by the way. But what is the real value that God is trying to express to us in this commandment? It is simply this, the importance of contentment. That's what this verse is all about. It's about being content. It is God telling me that I need to be happy with the blessings that He has sent my way. That I can't constantly be wanting what God has given to somebody else that He hasn't given to me. Contentment is an expression of faith. Contentment is an expression of gratitude. When I realize that everything God has given to me, I don't deserve it anyway. It's just a gift from Him. I need to be thankful for it. You see, gratitude keeps me from focusing on things that I don't have. And some of us need that antidote to covetousness today. We need gratitude. Contentment is realizing and acknowledging that stuff will not make me happy. See, real happiness, real joy comes in my life, not from obtaining things, but real joy and happiness comes from relationships. And it comes from accomplishments. And when I love, when, when I love others and seek to bless them, I find contentment. When I work hard and accomplish things, I find contentment in that. You know, when I just take care of the garden that God has placed me in and put me to work in, there's contentment there. But when I sit around, jealously desiring what other people have, I commit the sin of covetousness. I waste my life away wanting what I don't have, and I never enjoy the wonderful things that I do have. And I know I'm speaking to some people here today about this. Because some of you are miserable. Because you keep looking at what your neighbor has or what your friend has or what your coworker has or where they live or what they drive and you're miserable because you don't have it. And you know the sad, the sad part is is that you have so much. Have you looked around at the rest of the world? Have you looked? You, you don't have to look very far around Atlanta. Trust me, you're going to find plenty of people that don't have what you have. But covetousness is a sad trap. And it traps both poor people and rich people. Listen, I don't care how much you have. There is always somebody out there that has something that you don't have. And if you get sucked into covetousness, you'll spend all of your time wanting what you don't have. Trust me when I say that most of us do not have to look very far to find people who have far less than what God has blessed us with. Well, guys, there you have our Ten Commandments, our, our Ten House Rules that we have living in God's house. And how good is life when we live with these boundaries? When we say, okay, God, I get it. There, you've drawn a line in the sand. 
I won't cross it. And not just that, God, but I understand now why you drew that line in the sand. I know what you're after, Lord, and I'm going to honor that. Let, let me very quickly just throw them up on the screen. The ten things that God values that we learn from these commandments. First, we learn that God wants us to trust God and God alone. Second, He values that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. He values that we rightly represent His name. He values that we prioritize rest and worship and family every week. He values that we respect the authorities that God has put into our lives. He values life itself, and so should we. He values marriage and family greatly. And He, va- he wants us to value this right of ownership that He's given to us, and He wants us to take responsibility for the things that, that we have that come with that ownership. And God also wants us to value honesty and integrity. And lastly, He wants us to learn to value contentment. And maybe that above all. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor James Chapman. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor James' teaching ministry by visiting calvarycsm.org.